You are listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing, strategy, and sustainability hosted by Graham Sinclair. This is just investing. So that's where you go with Gen 1. With Gen 3 or Gen 4 that might be younger, right that are focused on the ideology on the authenticity on the transparency on the fact that their future to some degree was mortgaged right. by the generations before them so mm-hmm. with gen 3 gen 4 you have to have the empathy you know the sensibility that they want and at the same time you can show them like we can connect the language is different, mm. right? But the intention is somewhat the same. Now, some generations, whether whoever it is, might be willing to take concessionary returns mm. with some of their assets. They might not be looking for market rate returns. So we can do kind of blended capital. You can do anything in between. Mm. But first, we know that this is the discipline of the future of finance. I would truly like everyone to think about every dollar they invest and where and how it's being invested. All we're looking for is um, consistency, right? But there's also ways that, you know, smaller amounts and, you know, whether it's retirement money or through ETFs or, you know, online, we need, we need to move trillions of dollars mm-hmm. towards impact. Mm-hmm. And so it needs to be everyone. Sustainable impact investing is the finance of the future. And so, you know, what looks like big sharks now, mm. you know, if, if investment advisors and asset managers and asset owners don't get this, they're going to be the little Meg. I'm pleased to welcome to the ESG and Coffee podcast my next investor guest, Erica Karp, Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone, in episode six of our first series of long-form interviews, The Originals. I first met Erica in a skyscraper in Lower Manhattan while on the global roadshow launching the Access to Nutrition Index back in 2013. Erica was heading investment research at UBS at the time and spoke as the institutional investment expert. I respected her experience and candor answering a question on paying investment analysts and opening up minds to look at new themes, for example, nutrition in the food and beverage sector. In season one, episode six of the ESG and Coffee podcast, you will hear Erica describes the trade-offs in ESG and her take on BASF as the, quote, most sustainable chemicals company, unquote, and the problem of Apple suppliers with military dual-use technology. You'll hear of Erica's willingness to pay the way on engagement with the companies, partnering with NGOs like As You Sow in San Francisco, and acknowledging the best victory is when a proxy voting action gets withdrawn because the dialogue with the company uh, by the investors has progressed. Erica had her own advisory and investment shop, Cornerstone, acquired by Pathstone Family Office LLC in September of 2020, and that deal closed in 2021. Pathstone is now getting close to 30 billion in assets under management. 
this fits the pattern of the whole in the whole investment industry where shops are looking to bulk up and fill the gaps in ESG skills and functions through aqua hires if necessary. Now Erica has 220 colleagues to work with. Erica says ESG starts with the G for governance, citing the example of the long shadow of poor governance that gave us the drama of Dieselgate at VW and other automobile original equipment manufacturers who were cheating on their emissions tests like Peugeot, Fiat Chrysler, BMW and Mercedes-Benz. But what German iconic car was Erika's extravagance 20 years ago? Our long-form interview helps unpack the technicalities, but also helps show you the humans making it happen. You'll hear, for example, Erika's laugh when she's using the Meg as her investment movie example, spoiler alert, and you'll also hear her choke up a little when reflecting on how far the field has come and the long haul it has taken to get here. That's the price of experience. As this episode drops, the Fed is anxiously being watched for news of changes. Erica says the Fed's response to the 1998 Russian debt crisis led to her biggest investing mistake so far, and a reminder that the Fed and events far away have been shaping investment flows for decades, not just since 2009. Have a look at the show notes for details and the links from our conversation. And stay to the end for our bonus tape where we kick back and share some reflections on how the interview went. As always, at the very end, I summarize in five minutes the interview high points and what for me was unexpected. So here we are. Please enjoy our long form interview with Erica Karp. Well, in this episode of season one of the originals in the ESG podcast series, I'm so pleased to welcome to the ESG and Coffee podcast, one of the originals making ESG positive investment happen, Erica Karp, Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone. She's on Twitter, so uh, check out on Twitter at your Erica Karp, uh, described as, quote, Sustainable Impact Investment Advisor, Pathstone Chief Impact Officer, Speaker, Mother, Lesbian, Human Being, and on LinkedIn, described as, quote, Erica Karp brings both pragmatism and intensity to driving forward the discipline of sustainable and impact investing. Having spent decades on Wall Street, Erica developed a deep belief in environmental, social, and governance analysis as a critical input to investment decision-making. She envisions a world where capitalism fully values all forms of capital, including human and natural capital, and where investments serve to foster a regenerative and inclusive global economy. Please welcome Erica Karp. Thank you, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's lovely to have you on. I'm looking, really looking forward to this interview. So uh, first up, where in the world are you today? So I am in uh, New York City in my apartment on the Upper East Side. Excellent. And things, uh, how are things feeling um, around where you live? Or what is life like? You know, it's, it's, um, it's coming back in terms of activity. New York feels... Uh, a little less densely populated. And right. it's actually, you know, kind of one of the positive things that comes out of tragedy. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I used to enjoy running uh, in the city on a Sunday. It's the same city, yes. there's still people, but it's just down by a few notches. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mostly we all enjoy running with our uh, our new puppies. Oh, lovely, yeah. lovely. What type have you got? I have a mini Bernadoodle. And he's got a little Spaniel in him too. 
it's a diversified portfolio you have there, right? Precisely. You may actually get to hear him. Um, <laughs> oh, excellent, excellent. At some point, yeah. This is a live recording. There you yes. go. Uh, first call, if we're at your local coffee shop or cafe, a place you'd pop into to get your, your coffee, what would I be ordering you from the counter? Uh, let's see. You would be ordering me um, a double shot iced latte. The nice. problem is you would be ordering it from Binocchio, which unfortunately uh, is not in business anymore. Oh, nuts. So, yes. Nuts. I'm sorry to hear that. I hope they found some way to rebound somehow, but mm -hmm. sorry about that. All right. So let's jump in then. Um, I like to start with the big picture. Uh, the tragedy of the horizons, if you will, referencing Mark Carney's 2015 speech at Lloyd's when you're still um, at the Bank of England. So we'd like to start by looking at what uh, Sir David Attenborough spoke about in his Netflix documentary, Our Planet. And he referenced two uh, critical data points, and I've asked you to uh, research yours uh, and added an extra one in there. So uh, let me ask this question and, and you reply. Here we go. In the year you earned your first career paycheck, which you do not have to reveal, roughly how much was each data point? And I'll, I'll ask you each one. So world population. Oh boy, so um, this is 30 years ago. Um, so I suspect it was something on the order of 6 billion, but I, but I honestly don't know. Okay, fair enough. And would you have a take on the S&P 500 at that time? Oh God, again, 30 years ago, I, forgive me, I, I have no idea whatsoever. Um, no hell of a lot lower than it is now. There we go. And, and the carbon dioxide in parts per million, which today is around 417 parts per million. Any ballpark on that? Well, given the um, growth rate of the parts per million, um, given that it's been exponential over the years, um, Again, a hell of a lot lower, and I know even less about that number than I do about the others. Um, apologies, you stumped me out of all of these, Graham. No worries. We'll add it to the pub quiz the next time we, we're in the same place, yeah? We'll drop those into the show notes later. It's what I've found in my own research and in some of the other conversations. It's just amazing, even just sitting across. So I would venture the parts per million 30 years ago is going to be somewhere in the order of less than 350. And, and which is, you know, where we frankly, we're trying to claw back to. And it's really, it's just stunning to think just in that kind of career lifetime. Yeah, not like in Sir David Attenborough's lifetime, just in the working lifetime of, of yourself, how much things have changed. Yeah. Right, let's jump in then to some fast espresso shot questions. You cannot get these wrong because there is no right answer. And um, here we go with our first five. Are you ready? Go ahead. Question one. What is your earliest memory of investing? Oh my God, I was like five years old. And um, for whatever reason, I had already started counting money and I had a little, a little bank box. Okay. And my sister would come and want some money to go out for the ice cream man. And I would you know, lend her some money, but, but I made sure that she paid it back with interest. Excellent. So five years old. Started early. I like the ice cream part yeah. of that thing, yeah. Um, what is your philosophy? of investing in one sentence? Inclusive. Mm. Mm. Meaning, I want to include a lot of different factors 
in the analysis that I would do, that I do. Um, so inclusive of um, any anything that materially impacts the outcome. Got it. Um, and what switched you on to ESG? You know, it was very organic, um, very fundamental. Um, I learned uh, very early on that analyzing, you know, critical environmental, social, and governance factors in making an investment was a necessary discipline, allowed you to look more broadly, be inclusive, like I mentioned, and to not include an analysis of those issues is to miss all kinds of interesting data points on both risk and opportunity. So again, it was completely fundamental rather than ideological. Okay. But then the ideological, that works too, right. you know, in terms of making it interesting and exciting, endlessly fascinating and giving predictive insight. Got it. Uh, and then uh, in less than 30 words, how would you choose to define sustainable investment or investing with ESG factors? Um, sustainable investing is simply uh, the systematic analysis of material, environmental, social, and governance factors um, in any investment process. So that is sustainable investing. Excellent. Um, it's a discipline, words. by the way. It's a discipline. It's not an asset class. It's yeah. not a style. It's not a strategy. It's a discipline. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. And uh, hopefully we can pick up on that a bit later. And then finally, in this first uh, quick espresso shot question set, what is your biggest investing mistake so far? You know, there's so many, it's hard to say. And from everyone you learn, I'll tell you what the biggest mistake was, the most costly mistake was uh, not recognizing that the Fed would take action um, in the middle of the Russian debt crisis that was going to affect the US markets. So I was long, you know, puts on the S&P when the Fed did the first ever uh, intercycle rate cut hmm. and the market kind of skyrocketed in my face. Oh dear. That was a bad one. 1998, yes, yeah. I remember that well. You remember, yep. Very good. Okay, good. Well, thank you uh, for, for tackling those first set of espresso shot questions. Here we go to deep dive one. We have three deep dives. And again, these I'm trying to get to the details, the nuance here when I'm dealing with the originals like yourself in season one. So first up, easy one. What does your job title mean, Chief Impact Officer? You know, um, we're figuring that out right now because <laughs> with Pathstone having just acquired uh, Cornerstone, my company. Congratulations, um, I, by the way. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be able to craft um, a role that is both creative and commercial. And so, you know, in defining Pathstone impact, uh, what I believe is that this is an ethos Right. This is a, um, a discipline, a perspective, an infrastructure that we're going to build throughout the organization to do two things. One, um, to empower our clients to invest in for both financial returns and uh, environmental and social returns. Mm -hmm. And then, um, again, aside from the investing, we allow our clients uh, through great investing 
to align their assets with their own values. And so my job is to drive all of that through the organization, actually inside and externally. Hmm. Uh, So it's really exciting. Um, Yeah, so we're we're gonna kind of uh, be creative um, and intentional about what we do. Wonderful. So, so assuming that uh, a bunch of the listeners are not as detailed or specific in investment as, as you are, um, I like to try and simplify things for them. So I like to simplify in the investment value chain what people do. And if the choices were trying to fit you in to the big picture, um, you and all your shop. So owns the money, gathers the assets, manages the assets, researches investable opportunities or influences the investment decision system which just in very thumbnail framing which would you say you do or your firm does or both well a a bit of each Um, but the one word that was not mentioned there we are primarily an advisor an investment advisor all right, so I guess it's the latter in terms of influencing how the assets are deployed on behalf of our clients. Okay. So, uh, but again, researching is a critical part of that, right. analyzing asset managers, doing primary thematic research. Um, so it's a little bit of everything, Excellent. but advising is the key word. Okay, good. And then again, just keeping it simple. So how does one buy your investment service? So if Erica Karp, someone's impressed, they hear you on this podcast, they say, I want to buy some Erica Karp. How do you do that? That's great. They, they open an account with Pathstone, okay. right? So it's a matter of um, bringing the assets to us. And then we will do everything from create an investment policy to the asset allocation to selecting um, uh, the right products and strategies, um, and then everything that a family office and foundation might need. In families, we could do tax and estate and um, concierge services, but it really is a very inclusive offering. Um, so it's, it's exciting to have these resources. Excellent, so, so tying to that then, I picked up off the website, um, this this motto strapline it says quote ESG and impact what matters most to you we can help you align your investment portfolio with your values without sacrificing results maybe take a minute just to unpack what does that sentence mean what it means is um, if you are kind of thoughtful and intentional um, about where your money is. If you care what your money is doing while you sleep at night, Mm. well, we can help you um, be comfortable and be aligned in those aspirations. And at the same time, you don't have to sacrifice investment returns, all right? So we will strive to get you market rate returns while at the same time, um, getting those investments that um, that align with what you would hope uh, to do for the global economy. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And and then um, in terms of the the business of investment that you work on here, um, I'd like to talk very quickly about how do you sell ESG to clients to family offices in, in 2021 and and before you answer just very quickly i had this experience where i was invited in on a project in back bay boston a family wealth uh, office situation and they had this fascinating situation where they had three generations around the table making decisions for the family assets mm-hmm. and 
this person who invited me in on the project was explaining they had never seen a situation like this before where very clearly the intentions and the expectations of the 20 something 30 something generation was quite different and uh than than you know the silver haired generation if you will and um and and they really you know, faced a situation of, well, how are we going to get past this impasse? And how do we need to, in some way, update the investment philosophy or the processes that we have in place for this particular client? So mm-hmm. I, that's always stuck with me as an example of where like, it happened in the moment. It happened around the table and suddenly it became very clear the old way of doing things could, could no longer work. So, so your experience may be different, but how do you speak to sell to ESG to family offices in mm-hmm. 2021? Well, I mean, let's say, I mean, that's, that's a very, um, that's a relatively common situation hmm. with however many generations there are, right? But what you have to do is first go to the pragmatism, go to the fact that ESG analysis, that discipline that I mentioned, mm-hmm. all right, is intended to be an enhanced analytical lens, mm-hmm. all right? Why would you not want more information rather than less? So for Gen 1, we have to go through the empirical research that shows, and by the way, I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of reports that show that when investing with ESG analysis, you are getting either the same or actually better returns than you are when you don't use ESG analysis. Again, not about ideology. Mm. right? It's about pragmatism and enhanced analytics. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the numbers. We talk about fiduciary duty. Mm-hmm. We talk about killing that myth of underperformance. We right. talk about finance. So we can do a pitch on sustainable investing without using words like sustainable, like um, principles, like morals, like responsible. We don't have to use that word. This is just investing. Right. So that's where you go with Gen 1. With Gen 3 or Gen 4 that might be younger, Mm -hmm. right, that are focused on the ideology, on the authenticity, on the transparency, on the fact that their future, to some degree, was mortgaged by the generations before them. So Mm -hmm. with Gen 3, Gen 4, you have to have the empathy, you know, the sensibility that they want. And at the same time, you can show them, like, we can connect. The language is different, Mm. all right? But the intention is somewhat the same. Now, some generations, whether whoever it is, might be willing to take concessionary returns Mm. with some of their assets. They might not be looking for market rate returns. So we can do kind of blended capital. You can do anything in between. Mm. But first, we know that this is the discipline of the future of finance. Um, And then they have certain factors that um, change the landscape, they change the dynamics of the capital markets, big data and transparency and standards for disclosure. All of these things are fundamental to using ESG analysis as an enhanced lens, giving us predictive insight. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you, we can talk across generations. And by the way, this isn't actually selling, mm. this is advising mm. and this is aligning. Mm-hmm. with your clients okay uh, so a follow-up question then what what mm, roughly and you early kind of into the role uh, at pathstone if you will um so so how many of the clients the existing clients or prospects 
how many of them are flagging ESG as something they want to talk about? Or, or how, how is that conversation going? What ratio of clients are like, like every client wants to hear from you or some clients want to hear from you or some clients want to hear from you later? How, how's that going? It's kind of all over the map, but there is clearly a groundswell of curiosity and demand. Mm. And so that's, that's very exciting, especially with us. I mean, you know, being the kind of preeminent um, independent impact investment advisor, this mm. is absolutely exciting for us. And, um, and so it really is across the map. I would say mm -hmm. that institutions, mm -hmm. so select kind of um, foundations and endowments mm -hmm. and nonprofits, to, um, to an entity that mm. is um, uh, issuing a request for proposal, right. it is almost always yeah. included now. Yeah. Yeah. With regard to individuals and families, it's kind of all over the map. The multi-generational families, again, it is the um, you know, next gen that is asking for it. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of influence there. And we know that over this next 30 years, we are going to have a massive intergenerational transfer mm. of wealth, something on the order of $50 trillion. Um, and so knowing how to deploy the tools of sustainable and impact investing, uh, we think, you know, this is, this is very exciting. It's a great mm. opportunity. No, I, th I think it's excellent for you. So I checked on the form ADV. Looks like your shop has around uh, over 27 billion uh, AUM at, at the moment, you know, hoping that grows for you. Um, one, one thing I want to just check on the um, time horizons. So when you're doing your work, I'm assuming your ESG work is happening across all asset classes. And, and uh, you know, those asset classes have different time horizons. Could you just take a minute and unpack kind of how you see ESG and time horizons, how you talk about those things together? Well, given the complexity of proper ESG analysis, um, the time horizon is typically longer because the interactions of all of these factors um, sometimes it takes time and sometimes understanding what is going to be a material impact now, material meaning uh, it matters to an investment decision, right? Sometimes what matters today and what's managed and, and, and analyzed today is not necessarily the same thing that we're looking at tomorrow, mm. Right, so that gives you a sense of the complexity. Mm. And then some things like issues of um, governance, for example, there's some things that are clearly long-term structural and there's some things that kind of happen before your eyes that you might not have expected. So they don't matter until they matter. And so generally I would say this is a longer term mindset um, but again, you have to remember the complexity as mm. to when things kind of come up. The idea is you don't want to be surprised. Right. 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 Yeah. Nothing should be happening above the fold on your journal or your FT that, that should affect your portfolio. Well, it's going to affect your portfolio. The question is, is it going to completely disrupt it? Right. Um, uh, but it will affect it. Yeah. Mm. Fair comment. Okay, um, on to ESG uh, into the process of, of how it fits in now. Um, quick question around, so how many humans uh, at your shop do ESG and how, does, uh, how do they factor into the investment committee? Right. Um, so we have about, we have a little over 200 people, 220 people. 
And again, my job as the chief impact officer is making sure that 100% of Pathstone um, understands whether it's deeply or kind of newly, um, really understand what this means. And so they have the opportunity to better align with clients. What I would say is that while maybe not even intentional, um, a huge proportion of our clients do have investments that um, are managed by professionals that understand ESG and build it into the portfolios. So um, I wouldn't call this subversive, um, but but I used to be at my former big investment firm. And, and the reason I say subversive is because um, we are building in ESG analysis to so much of our investing and so much of our dialogues. Um, so it's, um, again, all over the map in terms of the level, the intensity mm-hmm. of integration. But um, again, as I mentioned, this is an ethos and this captures everything that we do, the culture, the language, um, the ability to align with clients, the ability to find predictive insight into factors that, um, that help us engage along the lines of the UN, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Sure. So um, we're getting there. Okay, good. So picking up on the, on the, the kind of factors you look at, one question that I keep getting more and more um, is around carbon footprint analysis. So basically, people in the industry and or people looking get, getting into the industry, they're looking at through the portfolio and basically tracking pollution in this case, climate pollution, CO2 equivalent, and then connecting the dots to temperatures, right? At this level, this temperature predicted, uh, of course, it's a comp- climate's a complex system. So I'm seeing more and more questions coming in from asset allocators or uh, through RFPs where, where the questions on, well, how do you conduct uh, uh, carbon footprinting? Do you do temperature mapping? Do you have climate scenarios in your portfolios? Do you have an approach to, to the carbon footprint uh, in the portfolio? So um, again, different investors are going to do it in different ways. Um, there's um, data sources out there that we use. We happen to use MSCI mm-hmm. um, to figure out how to, um, to do a carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, there's two things that I worry about. Uh, one is that um, there's so much data out there and sometimes it's given in different forms, um, different numbers, differing, um, difficult to, uh, uh, to project, difficult to compare. So I do worry sometimes about a false precision, if you want to call it, that can let us kind of uh, lean back on not actually taking enough action. So it's one thing to talk about stuff. It's another thing to affect uh, the outcomes and the outputs. And so uh, that's another thing that worries me. Again, the idea of, um, as an example, companies, corporations, um, measuring things, um, investors uh, looking to kind of review and possibly uh, divest, but not actually engage with the company to help them make it better, Hmm. right? And so there's some worries um, associated with carbon footprinting that I would, you know, consider. But yes, we do it. Uh, clients want it. And uh, there's plenty of data sources. 
Got it. We'll pick up in our third deep dive, some more on that engagement divestment piece. So I look forward to hearing all from you then. Um, uh, I thought to ask you quickly, you had an interview recently, well, uh, I think maybe six months ago, late last year with Bettina von Hagen, CEO of EcoTrust Forest Management. I found it to be really interesting. I'll include it in the show notes for the listeners and, and the viewers who want to go back and look at it. And you were asking her questions around the role. What is the role of forestry? You know, how should it fit into the portfolio? Um, so can you just maybe, uh, we have you on the podcast today. What did you take away from that interview? And or what is your view today on the role of forestry in, in yeah. portfolios? I mean, first of all, Bettina is amazing. And there is a place uh, for real assets inside of a portfolio. So we know that. Um, and again, an example of trying to get, you know, market rate return um, plus environmental impact, you know, that's exactly where we're trying to go with that. Now, I guess for me, the most interesting thing is, and, and by the way, this is kind of always the case for me, because I mentioned inclusive uh, investing, the extent to which the forests um, are so inextricably linked with water and the oceans and the forests are inextricably linked with the animals and the species and the forests are inextricably linked with our air the air that we breathe and so i guess it's the complexity um and the you know the need to really find solutions that are you know systemic mm. um that's really what struck me most with mm. bettina's um presentation mm. i i want to have her on at some point or as much for her beautiful wood ceiling I oh my god wasn't that great douglas fir fsc certified and and I'm like, so i've upcycled you know these are old conference boards and i've got you know egg cartons from the local diner so i'm legit in terms of upcycling my little studio but one day erica one day i might have a ceiling like bettina my aspiration too it was there awesome Good. Um, and then one more on, on some previous work that you did. Um, there was a uh, Cornerstone published research on, quote, woman entrepreneurs, mm. foundational to economic recovery back in July last year when things were pretty grim. Hopefully by this July, things are better. We thank all the frontline workers and healthcare people who are helping get us there. Um, so what what did you take away from that paper? What's, what's the main idea behind, behind that research? I mean, I was frankly surprised um, and also kind of not surprised given, you know, how women entrepreneurs, um, how they uh, finance and, and run their companies. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that entrepreneurship is critical to every economic recovery. We know that, um, you know, the jobs that created by small new companies are critical. What we found in that piece is that the, um, the impact um, between job creation and capital formation of the new companies started by women um, was dramatically larger hmm. than you know, the impact of the, um, on the jobs and the capital created by men hmm. um, when it comes to entrepreneurship. Hmm. And that what I say is it's not that surprising, although it was really great to see hmm. on paper, but um, despite the fact that women entrepreneurs get about 1% of the venture capital dollars that are made available, hmm. oh, by the way, women of color 
get statistically zero um, of the venture capital uh, that's put out there. So the women are starting these businesses on their own and the intensity of um, the focus, uh, the, um, the desire not to take on debt, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, uh, the lower uh, maybe risk mm-hmm. tolerance, mm-hmm. Um, maybe those are factors in why these companies, these mm-hmm. startups last longer mm-hmm. and prove to be, again, so critical to the economic recovery. Mm. As the son of a woman uh, entrepreneur, I can attest to many of those skills and making stuff happen. And frankly, that also maps to the work I've done in frontier and emerging markets. Mm-hmm. With, uh, for example, the African Development Bank, where a lot of their funding, they would fund the wife, not the husband. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't want to create aspersions and that somebody else's field of research, but they really figured that as a better way to deploy the money. And it's also like what Margaret Thatcher said, right? If you want something said, give it to a man. If you want something done, give it to a woman. There, there we go. There the, we iron go. Lady, the Iron Lady has spoken. I did not picture Margaret Thatcher in a, in a conversation. Oh, thank you for that. Good. Um, I want to give you a quick moment too on Bloomberg Wall Street week uh, last January. Seems like a lifetime ago now. I think that's before someone claimed coronavirus was a myth and would one day poof go away. Let's not talk about that. But you, I've, uh, I'll include this clip in the show notes again. You had, you were very clear on the four, four you talked about four myths around ESG. You said, uh, we have to think about data quality. We have to think about language of sustainability. We have to think about the fear that there's some sort of concessionary return. And we have to worry about the fear, the myth that we're breaking a fiduciary duty. I just wanted to get you on my podcast, just affirming that, or, or are you describing it, your, your take on that differently these days, or, or that still holds up? The answer is yes, hmm. it still completely holds up. Hmm. Um, the data is improving, the data quality is improving, yes. thanks to standards for disclosure mm-hmm. being created by the likes of SASB and right. GRI. Um, the myth of uh, underperformance uh, is still out there, uh, notwithstanding that the data shows it's, that's garbage. Right. Um, the fiduciary duty uh, issue, you know, the, the SEC under this administration is paying, paying more attention mm-hmm. and I think understands that this is just more material information. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the language, again, it's getting better. I do my best to always define terms. We define sustainable investing, impact investing. We add the issue of intentionality, additionality, and measurability. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so we try to keep those definitions uh, clear, and that will help. Mm -hmm. Good. Great. Okay, let's uh, come into land with deep dive one here, again, to the point around uh, being crystal clear, and then, frankly, also mapping to what may come from the SEC. And let's look at the key performance indicator of CO2 um, per ton footprinting. So a question I'm asking all my guests is, what shadow price or actual price for CO2 equivalents per ton does your firm use internally for your own operations? And are you tracking um, a price through your portfolio companies? So we don't do it for our own operations. Remember, we're an advisor. So we research and diligence these managers uh, and those that are totally focused on climate. Uh, we'll do it in different ways. I know that we believe that companies 
that use scenario analysis, mm -hmm. we find that particularly compelling. Mm -hmm. You are listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing strategy and sustainability. 您现在收听的是 ESG 和咖啡时间，投资策略和可持续发展。Okay, excellent. Let's come into espresso shot two now. Again, five questions, no wrong answers. You ready? Ready. Okay, here we go. What app is Erica most likely to be viewing on her smartphone while waiting in line? Um, well, I'm probably doing emails actually. But if I were looking at an app while I'm online,、uh, it's probably YouTube. Okay, fair enough.、Uh, that's where we'll be posting the podcast as well. Good.、Um, what book did you enjoy reading recently? Oh, let's see. You know, it, this is a, a reread. Actually,、mm -hmm. um, I reread、um, uh, Blink.、Oh, really? Okay. Yeah,、oh. because I had read it like whenever it was when Malcolm、yeah. okay. put it out, and so it's probably I don't know, maybe even twenty years ago.、Yeah. But I read it again as a person who has so much more knowledge about the thing that I do as a career,、mm -hmm. and so I just think it's like dead on. You know, you can make decisions more quickly、mm. if you value the computer learning that's、mm. going on in our brains.、Um, so I feel like I know more stuff. Excellent, good. What is the best kind of pie? Okay, so in Sag Harbor. There's a store called Cromers,、okay. and they have a pie called Fruit of the Forest.、Okay. It is by far the best pie. Well, there you go. I hope they pay you for that. Should they? <laughs> yeah. We, we, we'll put that in the show notes. We, yes. We'll see what feedback we get on that. Right. What is your favorite movie or on-screen moment that best relates to the world of investing? Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> So um, um, there's a movie called、um, what is it called? The Meg, okay? okay, and it's about these giant sharks that come up through you know man's messed up thing in the deep、okay. sea, right?、So、I'm picturing this, this has is, got like the Rock or Chris、uh, or Wahlberg or something like who's in? Yes,、the, one of those. It's、yeah. not what's his name. He's an Aussie. I can't okay, remember. Okay. He's great. Okay, so there's this one scene when they think they have the Meg, the big giant shark,、right. and they've got him on the ship. You know, caught him, and he's you know he's there, and then all of a sudden, the real Meg, this super giant shark, leaps up and eats the other shark. <laughs> It's one of my favorite scenes because they really did it well. Big surprise, but the reason that it's so appropriate for today、mm -hmm. is because sustainable impact investing is the finance of the future, and so you know what looks like big sharks now.、Mm. You know, if if investment advisors and asset managers and asset owners don't get this. They're going to be the little Meg. So,、um, thank you for that question. That's fun. <laughs> that is a keeper answer.、Uh, that's my top five. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As an investment professional, last last of our special shots. As an investment professional, what has been your most meaningful success so far? We wish you many more, but so far, what has been your most meaningful success? 
you know, um, it really is, you know, founding a company based on what needed to be done. So, you know, Cornerstone was purpose built and research driven to build the field um, of sustainable and impact investing. And so, I, you know, I'm so proud of what we accomplished. And I am also so proud to have found um, an organization in Pathstone that will truly allow us to scale the impact that we've had. Mm. So, you know, this is defining Chapeau. for me. Chapeau. Well, and respect to you. You know, when you're speaking about entrepreneurs earlier, I was actually picturing you uh, in, in some of your answer because I remember that launch party and, uh, you know, where you... Were you, were you headed out? So I've got great respect for what you've done over many years. Thank right. you, Graham. Right, deep dive two, here we go. Investment ideas. Simple question, hard answer. Where do investment ideas come from? Oh, I love that. Um, they come from everywhere. Like for me, I could be walking down, you know, Fifth Avenue in New York during the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day Parade and I'll see those big balloons, right? But I'll look down and I'll see some like Praxair tanks um, of industrial gases blowing up those balloons. I'm like, oh my God, I gotta go look at Praxair. I haven't looked at that stock for a while. Nice. So the ideas come from the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Right. Um, and then also the ideas come from, you know, the best managers and the best advisors mm. and the best processes in the world, mm. right? So at Pathstone, we have a very large platform of managers, asset managers across asset classes. In every one of those asset managers, we are looking at the material ESG factors um, mm. that let us make decisions and that, that you know, drive the managers. Um, so having a great process matters a lot in terms of finding investment ideas. Thank you. So, so I, I really appreciate the creativity in anyone, right? Any field. And many people forget that investment ideas are kind of an expression of creativity. So I, I really appreciate that answer. Then, so then factoring it into a process and a business, of course, the business of investment. At some point, though, there's, 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 there's our special guest. There's our special guest. Um, there he is. Vinny, come. Okay. He's warning uh, us that there's someone at the door. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's part of a thorough process you have there. Yes. Um, so, so the investment ideas, when do you have to tell them to shut down or go away or decide it's a bad idea? You know, it's interesting. And, it, and this is very different. It's different for uh, specific companies. Um, large or small. It's different for um, different asset managers in different asset classes, right? And with regard to um, an asset class, I mean, you would ask different questions of a venture capital uh, manager than you would ask of, you know, a, a, you know an S&P 500 company. With companies, especially early stage companies, you would ask, okay, how can you potentially kind of build a protective moat 
around your business, sustainable competitive advantage, right? Mm -hmm. So when it comes to saying no um, to an investment, um, basically it's a question of um, understanding the, the business model when it comes to the company, and then understanding uh, the competitive advantage when it comes to an asset manager in their asset class. So, you know, there's no answer to that except to look at the right things mm -hmm. at the right times. Okay, good. Then um, more recently, uh, ARK Invests, Kathy Wood's shop, I'm sure you know well. So something that she's doing that's novel and, and I'm interested in is she's allowing her analysts, and I heard a head of research get interviewed recently. Uh, so she allows her analysts to present their investment thesis for kind of public debate or feedback or you kind of get beaten up. So famously, you know, one of the analysts put out something on Twitter and got beaten up for, I don't know how long the thread was, but it was pretty long. So what is what approach do you have to testing the investment ideas, to getting the pushback, either maybe you've got something going internally and or are you, do you have an external loop to the pushback on, on the investment ideas? You know, I have to preface this by saying that Kathy Wood, and I have known her for 20 years, is one of the finest investors, portfolio managers I have ever known. And the reason she is so good, honestly, is because however much you challenge her, however difficult the market is, frankly, like now, yep. Yep. she is so certain that she has done the best research that can possibly be done. Mm. Here's back when I talked about inclusive mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so what you would do is just ask those questions. What may she have missed? And, you know, she doesn't get defensive. She just gives you more information on why she is certain. And, you know, she, you know, she holds to her convictions. Mm -hmm. She holds to what she says she's going to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that incredibly compelling. And so that's the issue. It's all about the questions. Find out maybe what wasn't considered. Different scenarios. Right. Um, but again, the best of the best is what she does. Oh, that's very, I think it's generous of you. Can but you, come? You, know, you, you have the experience of working with her. So good to know. Good. Okay. Um, and then uh, changing tracks now, a different theme. Um, the portfolio KPIs. Uh, I don't know how much or how little you're working kind of directly with the portfolios, but I'm interested kind of how do you watch if a portfolio is working? What key ratios or data points are you watching to say, uh, no, the portfolio is doing what we thought it would be doing? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, our advisors are looking at loads of, um, of data points. Our research department, our strategy team, is looking at everything that's going on in the markets from interest rates to currencies to inflation uh, to multiples, valuations, earnings margins. Um, you know, we're looking at all that uh, to inform uh, the advisory work we do for our clients. And so in, in market circumstances um, that are difficult, like the last couple of days, frankly, we're able to go back um, and take a look at our expectations, our scenarios, and say, you know, here is, 
you know, what we think might happen. Here is where we have uh, risk or we haven't considered something. And then we talk about what they might want to do, if anything, um, to the portfolios. And by the way, very often, given the long-term thoughtful advice that we are giving to clients, um, very often times like this are when uh, good times not to do anything in terms of allocation. Um, but we're looking at everything from macro to micro um, all the time, frankly. Okay, good. Um, uh, while we come to land now on, on deep dive two, uh, two further points I just want to uh, pull through with you. One is, how do you handle a situation where a company has got good and bad aspects in ESG. And we know ESG is just an abbreviation. It's just a way of describing something. It, I agree with you, it's a theme or a discipline, but you know, every company, if it's making more than one product with more than one worker in more than one place, there's complexity and there's gonna be variability. But how, what is your best advice? What is the approach that you take on figuring through, look, there's good parts of the company and less good parts of the company in, in the ESG space or across the analysis? Um, by the way, first, two things. I actually don't use the word good and bad very often. Okay. I talk about what is, right? Um, also, I would say there is no such thing as a perfect company, right? I agree. And thirdly, I would say that there are always trade-offs. Now, on the other side, from the investors, they're going to be, they're going to be certain trade-offs that they will not accept, Right. Um, so they will end up, um, you know, divesting and not engaging or whatever else. They will not accept. So they will not, for instance, buy um, a beverage company that has um, uh, alcohol products, or they, they will not buy a chemical company. All right. Let's use a chemical company as an example. All right. Um, in fact, let's use BASF because I know them a little bit. So arguably, they are the most sustainable yep. of all chemical companies in the world. That said, they do produce chemicals. Right. Um, but in terms of governance and auditability and accountability, right, and their thoughtfulness about sustainability, that's what you would call good. You know, we know what's bad. But by the way, if human beings want our cars and we want our toys and we want our skis and we want our, you know, roller skates and whatever right. else we want. There's chemicals in there, right? Sure. Yep. So that's an example of it is what it is and um, investors have to decide if they are willing um, to, to yep. invest in a company like that. Same like with Apple, right? Mm. So Apple um, in the iPhone has mm. a you know, tiny little component that might be made by a company that does some defense contracting. Right. If someone is completely not interested and wants to divest of any, mm. you know, defense company, are you going to buy Apple? Mm. You have to think about that. It's not right or wrong. Mm. It's just what is. Yeah. And, um, and so it's just a trade-off, you know, right. and i tell you what, it's about progress for the most part for any company. It's about how is the momentum associated with those ESG factors that end up uh, being part of the um, economic and profit outcomes. Hmm. Good. And then my last piece in deep dive too, 
around the question of greenwashing. So I, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but in my view, greenwashing is real. I'd say it's become industrial scale in the last year or two, as more and more marketers and or business types have found the word or found their ESG space. So two questions related. Do you agree greenwashing is real? And if yes, how does it hurt the work that you do, Erica? Uh, yes, it's absolutely real. And it's quite problematic because um, what you might have is a situation where ESG analysis, deep analysis is not actually done, except there's an observation um, of some single ESG factor. And by the way, there is no single ESG factor um, based upon which you can make an investment decision. These are simply starting points for further inquiry, right? So if you see a fund labeled as sustainable or impact or ESG, um, and the deep analysis isn't gonna be done, if that fund performs badly for whatever reason, that's going to undermine the economic in, you know, outcomes that we're actually looking for. Right. So it actually does damage. Now, the issue is, and, and by the way, let me give you a data point. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember which of the data providers uh, told me this, but um, I'll, I'll dig it out. But the point is, I was told that um, over the past year, 91% of the funds that have been introduced as impact or ESG or sustainable, 91% of them are relabeled from an existing fund. Wow. Now, I believe that ESG analysis and sustainable and impact investing um, need to be in the kind of DNA, right? Um, they are, again, I use that word ethos mm -hmm. of you know, the, the financial professional doing the work. And so I am genuinely worried. The good part is now that the SEC is beginning to look at that, they're looking right. at the ADVs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is gonna be really interesting mm. to find out who is really thoughtful mm. about this kind of analysis and thoughtful and intentional mm. and you know measurable right. and who is not. And so this is going to be a really interesting area for, yeah. frankly, for years. Yeah, but I do worry about it. And the, uh, the, in terms of the business of investment, I, I'm interested in the EU approach where they've got the three categories, right? It's conventional, uh, let's call that brown or dark brown, and then light green and more green, right? And you can argue uh, like on the margin and un at the underlying, but at some point you need to simplify it for the buyer and also, if you claim to be something, if it's on the tin, it better be inside the tin as well. Right. Right. Okay. You're listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast, hosted by Graham Sinclair. Sie hören den ESG and Coffee podcast. Ihr Gastgeber ist Graham Sinclair. Espresso shot question set number three. There are no wrong answers. Are you ready? Um, so, by the way, this is a teas tea, right. jasmine green tea. Love this stuff. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> On ESG and coffee. We'll try and make that work. I'm not sure how we'll make that work. <laughs> well, by the way, the company is a Japanese company called Ito N. I don't own the shares, but it makes me think that's an investment idea. Right. We'll there you that. go. This is where investment ideas come from, Erica. Um, <laughs> Question one, do you have a favorite type of tree and what is it? Oh boy, 
I would say it is a, we don't, I don't see them that often anymore. It's a Japanese maple. Um, hmm. And I remember um, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. my mom planted one in our front yard mm-hmm. and it was in this bed that was mostly like stone and boulders. Right. Right. And, and, um, and I was worried that, you know, we were worried that it wouldn't make it. Mm-hmm. And my mom tells me yeah. that I said, if it wants it bad enough, it'll make it. Yeah. What a great and story. it did. It's out there. Wow. Yeah. If, if your mom or someone who lives nearby could take a photo, I will include that in the show note. I, I love John. those stories. Um, <laughs> question two, what one book on investing would you recommend? I was going to say blink again, but, um, oh, I got it. Um, Sun Tzu. Okay. The general, the great Chinese general, the art of war. Okay. One Um, of the best investing books at all, of all. Okay, good. Because investing is war. What, what what are you saying by that? Investing. uh, All right. Here's an example. So in that book, Mm-hmm. Sun Tzu said that strategy is the longest route to victory. Mm-hmm. Tactics are the noise before defeat. Right? So think about that. You've mm-hmm. got to have both mm-hmm. strategy and tactics. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, if you have a good investment strategy, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that, that should work. But if you only have tactics, you're running around and just like not really knowing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't work. It's noise. Got it. Um, Question three, how is your own retirement fund invested? Ah, well, I'm happy to say um, that my um, assets are invested um, 100% sustainable. Now, again, I define sustainable differently. So for example, um, I have uh, one of my investments is um, an ESG climate-driven credit, corporate credit hedge fund. Hmm. Right. Um, it's called, I'll tell you, it's called DSC uh, Meridian. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the idea of a corporate credit, you know, an event-driven corporate credit hedge fund, that doesn't sound very sustainable. Mm. It so is in terms of having impact on uh, on climate, right? So that's one extreme. Mm -hmm. And the other extreme, uh, it's not an extreme, but the basic equity investing through organizations like Trillium and like Boston Common, you know, and and, um, like Green Alpha. Mm -hmm. These are investors that really know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of investments I have. Good. Well, I'm glad to say all three are being interviewed for the originals series. Perfect. Because they are. Yeah, they are. They are. Uh, question four, uh, espresso set three. What would be your advice to your 17 year old self today? Okay. So, by the way, I have a 19 uh, year old, 16 year old and a 13 year old. So oh, I have wow. three wow. girls. Yeah. Three teenage girls. And um so did you say my best advice or my best investment advice? No, best advice. But Best advice. Um, the best advice is to um, be respectful of mm. everyone. Mm. 
um, be respectful and look around, mm. see what's going on in the world. Mm. And in fact, um, there's a quote from um, Abraham uh, Heschel, mm-hmm. rabbi. Mm-hmm. And Heschel said that it is wonder rather than doubt that leads to wisdom. Mm. And so if you look around and you respect all opinions mm. and people and nature, mm. it's wonderful. Mm. And, um, and so I guess that's the advice that I give the children. Thank you. That's wonderful advice. Um, what is a uh, final question of this set? What is your advice to people seeking to enter the field of ESG investment and finance tomorrow? Right. Well, you know, I'll simply tell you that the first place I went when I started learning about sustainable uh, investing was the uh, Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So U.S. SIF. Mm-hmm. Um, first place I went, you know, I called, you know, Lisa Wall and I said, can I come talk to you? And I went to talk to her and first she gave me some of the best uh, homemade chocolate cookies ever. Then we went to lunch and she ate off my plate. And, you know, that's like, okay, we're instantly bonded on that. <laughs> and, uh, but SIF was my first resource. Okay. Um, so that's what I would recommend. There's so much out there to read mm. um, and to learn about and so mm. many conferences and webinars um, that you, you do have to start somewhere. So I'd start at SIF. Excellent. Great advice. Right. So roll up our sleeves for deep dive three of three, last deep dive, and then and then we'll wrap. Um, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time again, Erica. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Um, so uh, a question on performance and ESG. So in my view, searching for ESG alpha or performance attribution that you can precisely and directly link to ESG is a fool's errand. Um, do you agree, disagree? What part of fund performance do you attribute to ESG factors and how? Um, well, the first thing I should say is in the E and the S and the G, governance is first among equals. So if a company is um, not looking at the E and the S, mm-hmm. they are not well governed by definition. And, you know, that's, it's tautological to me. So the governance comes first. And one of the things we can start to look at, and I'll give you an example of where this has worked, um, is the, sometimes the lack of ESG data is as important as the existence of the data. Mm. So if you look at, um, uh, I'm thinking, was it VW? Yeah, if you look at um, at VW, mm-hmm when they had that massive um, lapse in governance entirely, mm-hmm. when you know somehow they allowed the, the, the tweaking Diesel of the data, yeah, yeah. the emissions Diesel data. Yeah, yeah. From what I understand that um, two years prior to that, they had some disclosure about carbon emissions. A year prior to that, that data point kind of disappeared. Hmm. out of their reports. So it just wasn't there. Hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. So sometimes it's just the lack of data, Hmm. right? And here's another thing. There's a study from uh, George Sarah from Harvard. Hmm. It's called First Evidence of Materiality. Hmm. And George showed that companies that report 
ESG data that is not material, right? It's not right. fundamental. Yeah. Um, actually underperform companies uh, that don't even report ESG data, mm. right? Or report decent ESG data. Mm. So um, that's kind of obfuscation, mm. right? So if a financial yeah. services company or a software company, I don't care so much what their you know, carbon emissions data says. Mm. I sure do in an airline or in a cruise right. ship or, you know, shipping. Right. So um, again, like you said, it's not one point, it's the intersections of the point mm. and the validity of the data and the materiality of the data. Hmm. I, I'm going to start teaching again, uh, first up at, at Villanova, and I'm, I'm dealing with that exact issue first, which is the strategy of the company drives what they should be telling me. And I think I've heard you speak before about that issue of it, the company needs to explain what is material in any given situation. And so obviously also including on ESG factors, the company needs to explain what is material to their success and what's driving their success and how it connects to strategy that directs what they should be describing. Good. Okay. Uh, let's move now to engagement and divestment. I, I, I indicated earlier we'd, we'd cover this ground. So um, your approach, uh, and I'll quote from the website, it says, Parstone view shareholder advocacy as a core component of ESG and impact investing and recommend a number of ESG strategies that are highly engaged in this area. Further, we believe that clients as asset owners should have the opportunity to raise their voices on issues of concern, both with managers and portfolio investments, and we will actively support clients through this process. I thought that was very positively stated. Would you like to expand a bit on that? You know, the only thing I would say is we, first of all, we, we really, um, really lean towards asset managers that are very actively engaging. Mm -hmm. We get some of these large complexes, um, asset management complexes, like you would think they should engage and you find out that they have maybe, you know, uh, had a voice in, you know, 5% of the, you know, of the, the shareholder resolutions that they've had an opportunity to say something on. I think that's terrible. And then some of the larger asset managers that don't talk that much about engagement actually are doing a lot of it. You know, like like a Wellington is a good example of that. Mm. Meanwhile, when we talk about the Trilliums and the Boston Commons of the world, they are very actively having dialogues in a very constructive way. So it's not about going to a company and kind of picking a fight. Mm. It's about genuine engagement, conversations, you know, maybe to the point where they're, they're before any shareholder, you know, proposal mm. is put in there. Mm. And then if a shareholder proposal is put in there, well, a victory is when it's withdrawn, right? Exactly, exactly. So, um, so we, again, we think it's very important and we facilitate our clients uh, doing it. We work with, um, as an example, we'll work with As You So. Oh, really? Okay. And we, yeah, and we will help our clients kind of partner with them and sometimes, you know, be the lead voice on a particular um, uh, shareholder um, uh, resolution. Excellent. So, um, yeah, so we will facilitate that very actively. Okay, good. And then, and then explaining. So one of the criticisms I have come across that I always try to rebut is the criticism. Well, if you're doing the work and you're changing company behavior, well, hang on, you, you know, there's 99 free riders for every one of you that's doing the work of the engaging and so on. What, what is your re response to that? You know, so be it, right? That in fact, 
to some degree, that is simply going to help our investment thesis play out, bring it. And at the same time, it certainly uh, you know, helps in terms of the uh, environmental and social mission. Okay. So, um, yeah, we're, we're not sad to be the leading voice or the leading edge. You know, we are happy because it serves everybody. Mm. I, I agree with you that um, most of the success, frankly, come outside of the proxy voting situation. But proxy voting is an important tool and it's an important you know, situation that, that we need more of, frankly, as you, investors speak to the companies. I was uh, checking the website. I couldn't find if uh, Pathstone was publicly disclosing the proxy voting uh, approaches or, or if that's happening through your underlying managers, where, where do you post it? How, how do people track the proxy voting activity of the strategies? Um, that's done by the underlying managers, and we closely have dialogues with them and track what they are doing. Okay, great. And then finally, with divestment, right? The so-called Wall Street walk. When, in my view, divestment, like any relationship, all relationships end. Hopefully, they end well. Sometimes they don't. Um, divestment is just the last step in an investment relationship. And uh, something bad may happen that causes you to end the relationship early. What is your... How do you describe when and if divestment happens in, in your strategies? Yeah, um, again, it's pretty much across the map. For the most part, the sustainable and impact strategies that we use, um, when they're not um, mandated in the investment policy statement of our clients, for the most part, they will engage. Mm -hmm. But very often we are working on behalf of the client that, that is explicit um, about it, divestment. So mm -hmm. it really is across the map. Okay. Right, let's come into land deep dive section three, and then we've got a, a quick wrap up with our last several espresso questions. So um, to wrap uh, deep dive three, I'm writing a book on the history of ESG. Um, Gene Rogers at SASBE encouraged me to, to write it. I'm writing it in an approachable way, maybe you know, with lots of visuals and so on. And the premise is very simply, what is a brief history of ESG in 100 moments? So if I had to ask you, Erica Karp, for if you picked up that book and you're leafing through it while you waited for your dentist or what have you, um, what moments, if you finished the book and you went, oh, hang on, Graham didn't write about X, what, what would that moment be? What moment would you absolutely need to see in that 100 moments in the brief history of ESG? Well, you mentioned Gene Rogers. Mm -hmm. So um, I was one of the founding board members of SASB with yes. Gene. Yes. And so, um, and with Bob Eccles mm -hmm. and Gene, you know, when they, you know, came to engage me, uh, knowing that global sector research mm -hmm. is my thing. Um, that was, you know, to me, that was one of the, um, the pivotal moments, certainly for me. Um, but the fact that in that, in through the three of us, you had a woman with a vision, right? right for, yeah. for standards, for disclosure. You had a professor who is the first uh, I believe that talked about integrated financial reporting mm -hmm. you know, of ESG factors. And you had, you know, an investment professional from mainstream Wall Street 
that as a research director genuinely believes that these ESG factors are material. Mm. So the three of us coming from very different places and then you know the folks that we brought on mm. um, uh, to help build Sansby initially, mm-hmm. you know Steve Leidenberg and uh, Suze McCormack, and I mean just a group that um, you know uh, I'm actually getting a little choked up. <laughs> Dan Hansen, uh, I mean it was an amazing group. Uh, Clara Miller who came on. And of course, um, you know, Michael Bloomberg. So right, right. That, that the formation of SASBE mm. is originally important. And then more broadly, and I think this is really critical to understand the mainstreaming mm-hmm. of ESG analysis mm-hmm. is that, you know, 40 years ago, it, it was ideological. Mm-hmm. It was about, we have to save the planet. Right. We have to respect you know, all the human capital, we have to have, you know, more um, inclusion and regeneration. I mean, that was a beautiful vision, mm-hmm. but there was a disconnect, right? And so when we started bringing in, you know, Wall Street companies, mm-hmm. finance, and, and brought them together, um, this, is, this is also, this is pivotal. Mm. And, and what, what moment would grab that for you? Or do you remember like a headline or a meeting you were in? Or and you, and you can come back to me if you. Yeah, I have to think about that because, like with ESG data mm. points, mm. you know, it's not a single one. To mm. Mm. You know? Fair comment. Fair comment. You are listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast. Hosted by Graham Sinclair. Вы слушаете ESGN Coffee Podcast. С вами Graham Sinclair. Great. Well, uh, have another sip. You've done really well. Uh, I feel really bad that you do, you're doing all the talking here. Um, so we come into land espresso shot question set four. These are um, made up of the Proust questionnaire that you see at the back of the Vanity Fair, as well as Bernard Pivot's version from inside the actor's studio. So are you ready? Wow. (laughs) Here we go. There are no wrong answers. What is your favorite word? Anamapia. Oh, nice, nice. Not sure I could spell that today, but I- The first thing that came to mind was shit, but I'm not gonna say. Let's not, thank you. And there are no edits on this podcast. Thank you for that. What is your least favorite word? Oh, God. Um, you know what it is? I'll tell you my least favorite word. Um, I'm going to have to come back to this. Circle back to this because I know what it is. And right. there's a reason it's my worst favorite okay. word, but I can't think of it right now. We'll bank that. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um. I probably want to be an, an auto mechanic. What profession other than your own would you not like to attempt? Um, bungee jumper. I don't know if anyone does that professionally. Yeah, but... yeah I agree. There's no reason why I'm ever going to do oh, that. Oh, I just remembered my least favorite word. Go. 
All right, and the reason it's my least favorite word is because almost everyone uses it improperly and it bugs the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> the word is enormity. Hmm. People use that word as if it means big. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean enormous. It means enormously terrible. And that's really important. And so because people use it so badly, I hate that word. Noted. Thank you. I'm glad you could share that with us. Um, what attribute does an excellent investor have? Um, curious. Got it. Which living person do you most admire? Oh boy, so many people. Um, can we bank that and come right back? All right. Okay. What is your greatest extravagance? Okay, so it's my um, it's my car, my my personal car. The reason it's a great extravagance is because it's a Porsche 911. Wow. Let me say this. It is uh, 20 years old. Okay. At this point, it starts becoming more valuable. Yes. But it gets about uh, nine gallons per mile. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you'll be buying the Taycan soon. I'm, I hear you saying you'll get the Taycan, yeah, right? You know, I totally, I totally love that. So. Gotcha. All right. For special occasions, we'll allow that just for special occasions. Which talent would you most like to have? Oh. Um, does it count if I say I would like to be able to uh, teletransport myself? That would be a talent. Yes. Right. There we go. Okay. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, probably um, founding a purpose-built company and growing it and then um, merging it. Okay. And what is your idea of perfect happiness? You know, um, it's contentment. I don't think there's perfect happiness, mm -hmm. but I do aspire to being content. And if I were content, mm -hmm. that would be perfect, perfect happiness. Okay. Can you draw a visual picture for us of where you remember last feeling content? Yes. So I was on, um, I was on the, the beach. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, this is relatively recently. Mm -hmm. I was on the beach um, with my dog, mm -hmm. um, with, you know, my ear pods, with a, um, a nice <laughs> glass of something. And my ear pods were playing share. And uh, there was a nice breeze and I could hear mm -hmm. the waves. That was awesome. That is a wonderful picture. I wish you for that soon again. Thank you. And so let's circle back. Which living person do you most admire? Uh, this is so hard. Um, again, there are so many people that I admire and it's actually, it's an aggregation. It's, it really is an aggregation, but, but it really is people who are creative mm -hmm. and who think laterally. 
-hmm. And if you think laterally, then you are able to um, to connect the dots and and visualize a system mm -hmm. um, that is an economic system mm -hmm. that is more uh, regenerative and inclusive. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I know I'm totally sidestepping this question. You are, man. You are. The record yeah. shows. Yes. Did yeah. I do it well, though? You okay. did. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> if something pops in before our last goodbye, I'll throw go. it out. There you go. You, you've got a future in rugby. That's called a sidestep right there. Ah, okay. uh, very good. All right. Um, power of one. And then our Goldilocks question, the very last question. Uh, I, I opened this Rachel up. Maddow. Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow. Right. Okay. okay. Here Noted. we go. Good. Okay. Right. Uh, audience, uh, uh, an opportunity for you to speak through the screen, through the, the speakers to our audience. And uh, in this way, what can we do about making sure environmental, social, and governance factors on every investment decision? What action in the investment ecosystem do you want our listeners to take tomorrow, wherever they are in the investment value chain, whether they're big or small, whether they're professional or not? What is one thing Erica Karp would like you, the listener, the viewer, to do tomorrow? I would truly like everyone to think about every dollar they invest and where and how it's being invested. All we're looking for is um, consistency, right? Mm -hmm. and so I would, of course, like every dollar to be invested through Pathstone. Okay, we are happy to be the advisor, but there's also ways that, you know, smaller amounts and, you know, whether it's retirement money or through ETFs mm -hmm. or, you know, online, we need, we need to move trillions of dollars mm -hmm. towards impact. Mm -hmm. And so it needs to be everyone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Call to action made. Right. Goldilocks question, the very last question. Here we go. So uh, yesterday at the close, uh, Tesla described as an American electric vehicle and clean energy company based in Palo Alto, California. I just found that was quaint to have it described like that. One share of TSLA on NASDAQ closed at 589 odd dollars. It was down for the day. Is that too high, too low, or just right? The Goldilocks question, Erica Carr. Well, first of all, this is the better question for Kathy Wood, so we know that. We'll get Kathy Wood eventually. Right, but what I would say is that it's just right ah. for the circumstances that exist last night when it closed, all right? It's kind of like, um, um, Edward Deming, okay, who was the, the great thinker in strategy and economics. I got to take his very last class before he passed away. Oh, wow. And he, Deming said that every system does precisely what it was built to do, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. if you think about that, we need to reorganize the system, right? right? And when it comes to stock prices, it's at the price it's supposed to be at that moment. And um, again, I know I'm sidestepping, but we'll go to Kathy for a better answer. You just described why there's a market of buyers and sellers, right? That's precisely it. 
Great. Well, let's come in with the market close now. You've been such a fine guest for us, Erica Karp, Chief Impact Officer at Pathstone. You're one of the originals for many years. You've been helping to make ESG and investment happen. So hear it from me. I like to say the, the investments you make become the world that we all live in. So thank you for your work over many, many years. It is my pleasure, Graham. It's wonderful, as always, to work with you. And now we keep the tape rolling to hear from Graham and his guest as they reflect on their discussion and anything they wanted to add. Uh, Erica, over to you. What did you uh, want to say during our interview and it flew by? Well, first of all, I apologize. I didn't have more studied answers to the early questions. <laughs> My mistake. Um, I got to tell you, Graham, you're, you're great. You know, the best interviewers um, really know their subject matter, you know, so that was great. And I truly appreciate the research you did coming into this, you know, it's, um, it was so thoughtful and, um, you know, it's, it's, it, you almost, you know, it, it reminded me of what it's been like over the past, you know, decades. Mm. We have done, it has been an incredibly heavy lift. Yeah. And, um, and to stop for a moment and look back mm. and, um, and give myself a little bit of a, you know, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really important. I, I think, well, maybe here's something uh, we didn't get to that I've reflected on is, as you say, you know, over decades and, and a heavy lift. And I'll be candid, I, you know, I've had some dark patches, shall we say, where looking at the data or working on projects and you, you know, you pushed a huge boulder up a very big hill and you thought, okay, now we fixed that, we can move to the next one. And you look around and the boulder's at the bottom of the hill again. So- Sisyphus. Yeah, there you go right um so i've i've had some patches how how has you know how have you erica handled kind of good days and especially bad days uh, how, how do you kind of make sense of the world or dust yourself off or, or get back in the fight hmm. so first of all i have a, a wonderful family an incredibly supportive family Wonderful. So that's probably first. Yes. So, you know, you always remind yourself like, okay, got my family, you know, so that's, that's mm -hmm. the biggie. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and this is a little Kathy Wood-like, mm -hmm. um, I know that I've got this right. I am mm. absolutely certain. And I've been certain for years that I've got this right. And making big decisions, a la leaving UBS and starting my own company, mm. um, I had to know I've got this right. Mm. And so that's what keeps me, it's always kept me from getting really down, mm. you know? Um, so that, that's the biggest, those are the two mm. things. No, that's, that's very, very helpful. Uh, two other things I thought to check in with you on is um, the future the future of investment, the future of ESG. Um, couldn't really find a way to kind of slot it into the actual interview itself. But if I had to ask you, so where where do you think, or where do you hope maybe things would be in 2030? What would you say? In 2030, so mm. 10 years. Mm. Um, I do think that the SEC is gonna be um, more clear mm -hmm. about having advisors uh, uh, show that they're doing something if they are doing something. So that I definitely think. 
Yeah. I do think in another 10 years, uh, we should have standards for disclosure. Mm. I remember I had a, um, a little debate on stage at a thing um, with an analyst from, uh, could be Chevreau. Okay. And this is, again, a while ago. Okay. Uh, SASB, I think it was pre-founding pre of SASB. Right. And we were talking about standards for disclosure. And he, um, you know, he said we should have this going in, you know, five years or so. Mm -hmm. And I said, with all due respect, setting standards for an industry that talks about other industries, there's no way this is going to happen in five years. And so, um, but I do think another 10 years from now, there we actually could yeah. have it. Yeah, I, I think it's fair. And, and then uh, last one for you. And this is, I think I asked you this question at the launch of the Access to Nutrition Index in New York at the MSCI skyscraper down, downtown Manhattan. I remember that. Yeah. And it was, uh, and, and that was, I think, maybe one of our first conversations. And that's where, you know, your role and how you're thinking really struck me. And it was a question around um, investment analysts, right? So it's, it's a business. Everyone gets paid somehow, right? But the hardest thing I often find is figuring out, so what are the, we talked a bit about the investment ideas in the interview, but then there's a question of, so how do you pay the analysts, right? Mm -hmm. So what if an analyst has a really good piece of uh, research, but people don't like it, right? The clients don't like it and or, or it's not a great piece of research, but everyone loved it, right? And they get, you know, whatever kind of payments method happens or scoring system. So how do you, how do you spot really good analysis and how, how can it get rewarded? And I would also say before you answer that we've had many more years and because of uh, more and more humans going independent, you can get, if you want, you can get the best analyst who's good at drive trains and they're sitting somewhere in Germany or Taiwan or Idaho. So, you know, there is that, but how do investment ideas get rewarded, get properly paid for? Yeah. See, this is, I have to admit, since, you know, it's been seven years mm. uh, since I thought about compensating, you know, analysts mm. or analyst compensation for sell-side research. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that I know is that any scheme that we come up with is going to be gamed by the analysts. Huh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Fair comment. So another thing I know is that somehow it has to be uh, thoughtful um, in terms of engaging the long term, mm -hmm. right? So most analysts, you know, for the last however fifty years, mm -hmm. have not been paid as it relates to the effectiveness of their recommendations. Right. They just have That's not yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it can't be over a one year period either. Fair. It needs to be about the cumulative effectiveness of their recommendations. Mm -hmm. Also, you know that analyst compensation, even though directly, even though not directly, mm -hmm. um, is related to the banking business. Yeah, yep. you know, it just yep. is, even yep. if you say it's not. Mm. But I think that's really problematic because mm -hmm. the banking business is a sales business. Yeah, the research fair. business is an advisory business. They really are two different companies. So, um, so yeah, so it's it's um, it's pretty messed up. And um, 
so I wonder if the way, you know, compensation is where the salary is much smaller mm. part of the total comp mm. and the bonus is the larger part. I wonder mm. if they should totally shift that around. Yeah, I, I'm open for ideas. I hope you enjoyed our long-form interview with Erica Karp. We covered a lot of ground. A friend likes to call Erica a strong cup of coffee. Now, at least we know she's a double espresso iced latte. Here's four high points from the interview and some things that I found to be unexpected. High point one. I appreciate how Erica waded in on this whole E versus S versus G dynamic, which in some ways for me is a false dichotomy. But Erica describes how for her, looking at environmental, social and governance factors starts with governance. If a company is not looking at environmental and social factors, for Erica, they're not well governed. And the lack of ESG data speaks volumes. Erica is pushing for what she describes as, quote, predictive insights, unquote, from ESG to put into her strategies that are executed then by external managers. She mentions Boston Common, Trillion, Green Alpha and others. And I really respect Erica's reflection on how investment ideas get rewarded or not, and how analysts will try and game whatever reward system is put in place. It made me wonder, given her comments on Professor Deming, how Professor Deming would recommend setting up a system where analysts are properly rewarded for their long-term impact of their analysis and recommendations. In the show notes, I will include a link to Pathstone's new thematic work on regenerative agriculture. As always, Erica's looking to push the boundaries. In high point two for me uh, is a reflection on being an active steward. Interesting to hear Erica's view that there's some large active managers who do not talk much about engagement, but they're quietly doing it. And hopefully you'll hear some of those conversations we have in future episodes of ESG and Coffee podcast. She also reflects on how the pure play ESG shops are very targeted and the good work from collaborators like As You Sow. Engagement can be victorious when the proxy vote shareholder resolution is withdrawn. The dialogue between the investors and the company carries on. Erica is not afraid to be the leading voice, to do the work that others free ride on. It maps to her one-word investment philosophy, inclusive. Now, as Chief Impact Officer, she has close to $30 billion in assets under management to work for. She says, quote, if you care where your money works while you sleep at night, you don't have to sacrifice investment returns. Getting investments that align with your hopes to do better for the global economy, unquote. When she's speaking about the conversations that she's happening, uh, having with her clients. Erica spoke of the shifting demand for ESG and impact and described the $50, billion, uh, $50 trillion intergenerational transfer of wealth. Well, I'll include in the show notes a Sorelli Associates projection that nearly 50 f- million U.S. households will transfer a total of $68 trillion in wealth to heirs and charity over the course of the next 23 years. High point three, well, there's complexity in ESG. It takes time and there's shifting dimensions of what is material. Erica doubles down on her smiting the four myths that she first explained in January 2020 on Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'll include a note in the show notes. And she knows the costs. Quote, what we have done over decades has been an incredibly 
heavy lift, unquote, is what she says. And she appreciates the opportunity to look back and take a minute. That's why we have ESG and Coffee podcast. Her greatest achievement, she describes, as growing a purpose-driven company and merging it. And she reminds me, reminds us, however tough it gets, you have your family. Quote, I know we've got this right, and I've known for years, unquote, speaks to her conviction. On the future of ESG, Erica expects the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission will be clear on expecting more from companies and portfolio and company disclosure standards by 2030. The SEC is, in fact, moving faster than she expected, and that's a good thing. We'll probably see something by the end of this year. And high point four, since we did the interview, the SEC has indicated the ESG disclosure standards are coming and will put out some kind of pro forma for public disclosure. You can assume they'll be very exciting and controversial. Um, There's increased demand that fund managers stop greenwashing. Erica wrote me a note yesterday as we're about to publish this, and she warned again of the greenwashing threat. Quote, pure product creation and marketing will undermine everything we're trying to accomplish in ESG and impact investing. We need skilled managers with real expertise in the discipline of ESG analysis and skilled investment advisors who can sort through the noise, unquote. So clearly that issue of greenwashing came through in our interview and continues to be really, really important. I also reflect back on a a tweet I put through in December 2018 where Erica said sustainability and investing is not simple. Advisors need to figure simplicity in messaging of a complex topic and spend much time to develop an authentic narrative. Unquote. I think it's fair to say that across these four high points and across our interview, you would have heard an authentic interview. What is unexpected for me? Well, I admire Erica's range of inquiry. I'm pleased she chose not to become an automotive mechanic and has the energy to raise three teenagers. I did not expect Margaret Thatcher to make an appearance. Maybe you also laughed at Erica's Megalodon eating a shark and sustainable investment example. Spoiler alert, don't be the little Meg. Erica is also pretty good at sidestepping questions like Ches and Colby and the Springboks winning the Rugby World Cup in 2019 for South Africa and beating the Lions uh, more recently. I'm still not clear how many of the 220 staff at Pathstone work directly on ESG for Erica, and I'll be sh- sure to track that going forward. And are you one of the humans who makes enormity her least favorite word? Erica lives in New York and name drops Sag Harbor in the Hamptons when describing her favorite pie. Well, for a moment there, I felt like Alec Baldwin on Here's the Thing. Well, those are my four high points and my unexpecteds. As always, our lawyer wants me to remind the audience that this podcast is for enlightenment, not investment advice. Do your own investment research. And I look forward to you joining us for our next long-form interview with an investor expert in sustainability, strategy, and investing. We hope you enjoyed the interview with one of the originals in investing, strategy, and sustainability. Please subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform or on YouTube and leave a five-star review.
bad reviews, you can send to Graham Sinclair at ESG Architect. All the details are in the show notes. And for news of our next guests, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ESG and Coffee. Do you know an impressive human we should absolutely interview on investment strategy and sustainability? Please let us know on Twitter at ESG and Coffee. Our producer is Kat Farquharson on Twitter at Kat Farquharson and original music by Aaron Bonney on Twitter at Aaron Bonney Music. And of course, this podcast is for your enlightenment, not investment advice. Do your own research. You have been listening to the ESG and Coffee podcast on investing, strategy and sustainability hosted by Graham Sinclair. Thank you.